May God's word be spoken today, may God's word be heard, and may God's word then be lived. Amen. First of all, I want to say it's really nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, many dear friends of mine are graduates of Tyndale and teach here and on staff here, so it's lovely uh, to be amongst friends this morning. The great Russian novelist and dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn recorded an incident in 1938 at the Russian Party Conference. At the conclusion of the conference, a tribute to Comrade Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up, just as everyone leapt to their feet during the conference with every mention of Stalin's name. The hall echoed with stormy applause, raising to an ovation. Three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, continuing. But palms were getting sore and raised arms were already aching. However, who would be the first to dare to stop clapping? The secretary of the district party could have done it. He was standing on the platform, and it was he who had called for the ovation in the first place. But he was a newcomer. He had already taken the place of a man who'd just been arrested. He was afraid. After all, secret police were standing at the back of the hall applauding and watching to see who would be the first to stop. The applause went on. Six, seven, eight minutes. At the back of the hall, which was crowded, they could, of course, cheat a bit, clap less frequently and less vigorously. The director of the local paper factory was an independent and strong-minded man, and he was aware of all the falsity and the impossibility of the situation, but he still kept on applauding. Nine minutes, ten. With make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope, the district leaders were just going to go on and on applauding till they fell where they stood. After 11 minutes of applause, the director of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. Ah, oh, what a miracle then took place. Where had the universal, indescribable enthusiasm gone? To a man... Everyone else stopped dead in their tracks and sat down. That, however, was how they discovered who the independent people were. And that was how they went about eliminating them. That same night, the factory director was arrested. Now, we could be cute and say that the moral of this story is never to be the first one to stop clapping. But we know that this is a story about hypocrisy, about public devotion to someone that is false and ephemeral. Now, in our time together this morning, I want to explore with you the third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And as we look at this third of the Ten Commandments together, it's good to remind ourselves that the first two commandments, which can be summed up as, don't worship idols, are actually key to understanding all the eight that follow. The great Martin Luther famously said that you only break the eight commandments when you've broken the first two. And we're going to challenge ourselves around this third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, by looking at it through the lens of that reading from Matthew. If you have your Bibles with you, it'd be good to keep it open. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Our oldest daughter, Emma, 
Uh, she just turned 13, and she asked me this week when she found out what I was preaching on, uh, she said, Mommy, how are you going to spin a whole sermon out of telling people not to swear? And which is, of course, how this commandment is famously, but rather superficially understood. This is actually a commandment against hypocrisy. Public devotion that is false and ephemeral. Now, if you're searching this morning, still asking questions about faith, not really sure why you're in the Tyndale Chapel, then as we look at this commandment, hopefully you'll get a glimpse of what it would mean to authentically follow Jesus. And for those of us here who are learning how to follow Jesus, there's going to be a difficult path laid out, uh, but a path that I do believe can lead away from hypocrisy and a path that leads towards a life marked with at least some consistency and some integrity. And for those of us who have non-Christian friends, you know, that's a big thing they jump on us on, consistency and integrity or the lack of it. So what does hypocrisy look like when we're using God's name? Well, to begin with, we know that names are important. Uh, Names open doors. Think about name dropping. We all do it to some degree. And if you use the name of a powerful or famous individual, uh, the power and influence of that person accrues to you which is why we name drop in the first place. Trying to secure a deal or a table at a restaurant or trying to make a connection uh, with someone you've just met. And think how embarrassed we would be if we name drop to a friend about knowing so-and-so and and then when your friend meets so-and-so and and they mention the mutual connection, I never knew her, would come the reply. Because using someone's name implies something significant. And this example was shared with me recently. Imagine you live in a family, and a child goes to the door of a bedroom and finds that it's locked. And on the other side of the door is their little brother. Open up, says the older child. No, says the younger one. And an argument ensues. Eventually, the first child says, You have to open the door. Daddy said so. And then the door opens. The child has invoked the name of the father. The child here is implying a number of things. They're implying, one, that they've talked to daddy about this. Two, that there's actually a relationship with daddy. And three, that daddy approves of what the child is saying and doing. And it is possible to use someone's name like this implying all of these things, that you have a relationship with them, that they approve of your actions, and for none of it to be true. Names open doors. Names matter. And our society strictly enforces this fact. Look at all the anti-defamation and copyright laws here in Canada. We take seriously uh, people's names because we know that people's lives are continually ruined when other people use their names in vain. How much more terrifying is it when we use God's name in vain, hypocritically? Jesus makes it clear in that reading from Matthew that it is easy to be using the name Christian on the outside. Daddy says open the door. But for that to lack any authenticity, for Jesus to say, I never knew you. Verses 21 and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Uh Uh-oh. Who are these people who are using God's name inauthentically, hypocritically? Well, first, they're people who are really committed. Notice that it says, Lord, Lord. In Hebrew, the way they emphasize things is by saying them twice. In our culture, we might use italics or emoticons. But for them, it wasn't just Lord, it was Lord, Lord. These people are really committed to following Jesus. And by using the word Lord, Kyrios, they're imbuing Jesus with the Old Testament attributes of God, making it clear that they believe he's divine. So not only are they really committed, they have a high Christology. They've got fabulous doctrine. They're getting A's. And they're also putting their faith into tangible action. They're prophesying, they're healing people. Lots of socially transformative work is going on here in the name of Jesus. Model church members, chair of the Outreach and Missions Committee, elders in the making. I never knew them. It would seem to be entirely possible then to be committed to Jesus, have high doctrine, be sacrificially serving others in his name, and still be missing the boat somehow to be hypocrites. Which is not only existentially terrifying, but is also incredibly demotivating. How will we know if we're being hypocrites and not honoring God and God's name? How will we know? Jesus gives a succinct answer. It's verse 7. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. We may be doing lots of socially transformative work in the world. We may even be telling others that we're committed to Jesus, uh, which is no small thing in the affluent neighborhood uh, where I serve. Even liking the St. Clement's page on Facebook is a significant moment of witness for the people in the church where I serve. Even if you're telling people you're committed to Jesus, but, and Jesus pulls no punches here, if we cannot back down from the assertion that we are in charge of our lives, and if we can't back down from the belief that we should be able to decide how to spend our time and spend our money, if we can't back down from the belief that we are the best people to decide what is right and wrong for our lives, then we may still be taking God's name in vain. Anglican writer Harold Percy often says this, the worst advice you can give someone is to just be themselves. To be using God's name authentically is to assert we know who we are And that means we know and put into practice the incredibly simple fact that we are not God. Now, this idea of setting aside our will is incredibly hard for us. Indeed, it's probably the central struggle of all human existence. And Jesus himself wrestled with it 
at his darkest hour in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done. And only when we've stopped worshipping ourselves in the variety of forms that that idol can take, our families, our careers, they're, they're classic idols, right? Only when we stop worshipping ourselves are we going to begin to move away from taking God's name in vain. And speaking personally, the only way I've been able to get my own head around it is realizing that when I do want to choose God's will, it's not all the time, when I do want to choose God's will, it's not so I will be loved and accepted by God, but because I am already loved and accepted by God. Those are very different lives. I've tried the one for many years of my ordained life. No, thank you. Now I'm learning the other life. Some days, all I can do is want to choose God's will. And other days, all I can do is want to want to choose God's will. My husband Tim and I drove with our three daughters to Prince Edward Island this summer. And in the car, we listened to uh, the classic Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables will get you to Quebec City, and then you have to listen to Anne of Avonlea to actually make it to, to PEI. We listened to it all. And as I listened to the classic story of the orphan girl Anne, I was struck by how when she was first staying at the house of Matthew and Marilla Cuthbert, she didn't know if she would be adopted. She was on trial. Marilla, while undoubtedly kind to the young girl, made it clear that Anne could stay if she was well-behaved. Matthew, on the other hand, Matthew loved Anne from the moment he picked her up from the train station. Anne, in turn, loved Matthew with a singular love. And Anne wanted to bring pleasure to Matthew with her accomplishments in life. Because Matthew, right from the start, loved Anne with free, unmerited grace. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is against hypocrisy. Public devotion that is false and ephemeral. If we're using God's name, claiming to live as Christians, many of you here preparing to lead others in Christ's name, what a wonderfully terrifying privilege, then at a fundamental level, it means that we are people who have yearned for that grace, for that love and mercy given to us by God that we cannot possibly earn, for that mercy won for us, great cost on the cross, and that we in turn are responding to God by a singular love, a love that will lead to consistently asking questions like this. How does God want me to shape my skills and abilities for his glory? How does God want me to prioritize the activities in my life? How does God want me to use the money that he's entrusted me with? None of that is a way to earn God's love and acceptance. How terrifying that would be. But we ask ourselves these questions because we have already been conclusively loved and accepted through the grace of Jesus Christ. 
something that Christian leaders are surprisingly prone to forget. These are integrity questions. These are consistency questions. And I'm not pretending that there are simple answers to these questions. But I do know that the path that leads away from hypocrisy and towards a life of singular love begins with questions like these. Amen.